You're listening to the Hotard Huddle Podcast, presented by me, Michael Hotard. Check it out as we dive into sports, movies, music, TV, and more. This is the Hotard Huddle Podcast. Bringing in time for another episode of the Hotard Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Hotard. Joining me today is my good friend, Herb DeLeon. Now, Herb and I go back to to high school. Um, You know, weren't really close in high school. We'll start with that. I had a math class with him, um, sort of reconnected through mutual friends. Um, But he's got a lot going on. I'm excited to have him on because, well, if you read some of the sports blogs that I've written uh, in general about sports, one of the things that I don't talk about enough because – I'm just not as up to date or as well versed on it, but it doesn't negate the fact that it is still one of my favorite sports. That is, of course, soccer. Um, Herb's got a lot of experience in that arena, both as a player and coach, and he's also um, a serious business owner. You know, he's got a really great uh, thing going with his uh, coffee shop called Coffee and Norco. So we're going to talk a little business and a little soccer and just kind of see where that conversation takes us. So without further ado, again, this is Herb DeLeon. Herb, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, thanks for having me on. I uh, appreciate it. And uh, I just wanted to tell you, I still wanted to be on today, even though you rank soccer number 10 on the, uh, the toughest sports. <laughs> Dude, it was funny. So, um, you know, one of the backstories, I recently just did a ranking for, the, you know, top 10 hardest somewhat mainstream sports i eliminated things like alpine skiing um lacrosse things like that and i kept it with primarily mainstream and unfortunately soccer was near the bottom of that and uh it was funny because i actually texted herb the other day and i was like look dude um don't hate me uh and you know still come on my show but unfortunately this is where soccer is but of course all in good fun and one of the things that should never be understated about sports is how difficult every fucking one of them is. And I wrote in that column that more so than the difficulty of the sport, it was just as hard to just rank them. You know, it was yep. – I'm sitting there going through this list and I'm just like, damn it. Like the fact that I have the four pillar sports outside of the top five, I'm just like, it feels dirty. So It does, yeah. No, I, I thought the list was good. I think I think everyone's biased to whatever sport they're they're involved in, you know. Yeah. Like I'm gonna of course be biased. But but yeah, no, it was a good list. But um no man, so um let's start with, with uh the business side. So this is something you and I have been talking about uh more heavily recently and We'll uh, share those details for a later date, but um, Coffee and Norco, this is something that uh, your family has been doing for a while. There's been a lot of moving parts, but uh, the the original coffee shop wasn't actually in Norco, and then this just kind of fell into your lap, so let's start there. You know, what's uh, what kind of transpired for you to bring bring a, a, a great donut and coffee place to place where we grew up, St. Charles Parish? Yeah, it's actually a, a really crazy story. So uh, my grandpa in 1977, he had been working for Tasty's, I think, for like four years at the time. And he went around, he was a manager of like different stores and things like that. And uh, in 1977, he decided that he wanted to do do his own business, do, 
get into the donut business on his own and quit quit working for Tasty's. Um, I kind of learned the ins and outs with Tasty's. Uh, so he started his own shop, and that shop that we were originally located at was the uh, the OG shop. So that was the original shop um, that we first started. Uh, he ended up then getting four locations after that. Um, so we had that one off the West Bank Expressway and Harvey. Then we had another one on the we had two more on the West Bank and one in Kenner. Uh, so we had a total of four shops when I was growing up. Uh, and then after Katrina, the one in Kenner had a fire. Um, so that one was gone. Uh, and then we sold one on the West Bank. So we had uh, the original shop, and then we had the, the newest shop, which is on the West Bank in Marrero, which is still there today. Um, so the one in Marrero uh, actually is, is the first store that my grandpa actually had bought. Bought the land, bought the building. The store that we were in, uh, the original store, we had signed a 30-year lease uh, with the building owner, and then we were in a year, one-year lease after that every year, after the 30 years. Uh, so he promised us for years and years, uh, right when I got to college, he promised my mom years for years, like, hey, I'm going to uh, build you a new, a new building. Like, you can stay in the building you're in. We're going to build one next to it. Uh, and then it'll have a drive through new seating. It'll be updated because, I mean, it's 2019 at the time, right? So we still have the store from 1977. Basically, everything's still the same, um, which is crazy because, you know, all the backs on all the stools are gone, you know. Uh, it just was run down a little bit just because of the time. Um, we kept it up as best we could, but nothing had been replaced. Uh, so he promised us a new building, all these things, uh, fast forward to 2019. And he basically tells us, you guys got four months to get out because Starbucks is actually going to buy the building. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Starbucks bought our building for a million dollars Jesus, and pays rent to be there. Oh my God. So they pay almost, I think it's like, they raised the rent. We were paying like 3000 and change a month for that spot. He had wanted to put the rent up to almost 7000 almost double. So Starbucks bought, the, bought a new build. Well, they were going to build a new building for a million dollars on his property and then pay him rent each month. Oh, my gosh. So if Starbucks ever leaves, he will own the building outright. That's insane. So, of course, we couldn't match that much less pay the rent uh the rent had doubled on us yeah uh so we had four months to find a new place uh and we basically every day went out looking for new places uh we found a place the all-american diner that was off on vets uh Uh, we looked at that place uh we looked at a couple other places on the west bank um and the time just kept passing and the first month went by, we didn't have a place. And the second month went by, we didn't have a place. And then in the third month, it seemed promising that we had found a place. And then it ended up falling out because of uh, something to do with the AC. So we're going into the last month of us having the shop where we're at. We have no location to go to. Uh, and basically, all of our employees are just they just confused as to what's going to happen. Uh, so we get a call out of the blue uh from the owners of the spillway bar uh basically saying they heard from a little birdie that we were looking for a new location so we ended up sitting down with them and we ended up actually buying that location at the spillway bar 
Um, so we own we own that location now, along with the Marrero location. Uh, and yeah, now here we are. Dude. And fast forward a year later, uh, and then we did a bunch of renovations. We I was in there painting. Uh, my mom was in there painting, sweeping up every day. Uh, you know, all the uh, like uh, drive through. Uh, menus, all the paper menus, basically all the text, the website I built. Uh, and I also help like do like, I'm not like a carpenter by any means or like some handyman, but like I can go help and clean up every day. And there's just always something to do, whether it be painting or moving equipment from the storage to the new shop or whatever. Uh, but we were basically all out of income for a year. Wow. You That's know. crazy. So me, my mom, uh, my sister, and my cousin all work at the shop, and my mom's boyfriend. Okay. So crazy, like to go a whole year, you know, like without that income coming in. So, um, and that's also for our workers too, you know. Like we we ended up bringing I think like six people from the old old shop. Okay, um, they hung around and stayed with us, you know. So and they were also there helping too, you know. <laughs> that's loyalty, man. That's loyalty. Yeah, so it was it was really a journey to get there. Uh, so I think we left the old shop in March of 2019, and we required the spillway bar in April, and then we opened up that December of 2019. Okay. Well, yeah. dude, that's that's insane. The fact that uh, Starbucks comes in. I mean, once you start talking about Starbucks, I mean, obviously, no disrespect, but. You know, you're talking about the biggest coffee chain, and it's just like, dude, that's right. That's, I mean, that's a killer. And no, it is. And the thing is, is as the as the the owner of the 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 land right there off the expressway, like I I get it. Like, yeah, these people are coming in. They're gonna build a building, which he had to pay to build a building for us. Like yeah. we weren't paying for that. Like he was supposed to pay for it. So now he doesn't have to pay for the building. You know, and then he gets double the rent yeah yeah dude you talk about going from three to seven oh man exactly yeah that's wild now um with uh so y'all open up in in norco and that that, i mean that it's got to be pretty cool i guess for you especially um you know and 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 your mom just because and i guess your sister too because you know y'all grew up in st charles parish so yeah, y'all got to stay close to home where y'all were raised, um, mm-hmm. and y'all got a lot of a lot of big things going there. I mean, I, I had first heard about it, uh, like I was, you and I were talking, uh, you know, a couple of weeks back, and a mutual friend of um, of ours had told me you had you had owned the uh, the coffee shop in Norco, and happened to see it on instagram and stuff i was like oh dude no shit that's cool so um but yeah y'all have recently done some some retooling and jumped through some hoops there to make that place what it is but it and you know one of the things that we've talked about is covid and um you know i i remember you telling me the y'all had to basically change things up almost immediately after opening so talk about that process yeah, so Corona's been uh, hectic, crazy, uh, unbelievable at times. So, you know, first off, any small business owner out there, like I feel feel your pain. You know, we're all going through it, you know. Uh, but with Corona, we, we've never delivered uh, in our history. 
as far as like uh, food and like you know daily deliveries. We've done catering and things like that for people, uh, but we haven't ever really gone into deliveries. Uh, so when Corona hit, uh, our other shop in Morel, they are, they use a uh, waiter over there on the West Bank. Um, so I had dealt with waiter when we were on the West Bank, uh, and they take a lot of money from the business owner. Um, and they end up making you have to raise your prices um, just so you can make a profit with, with waiter. Uh, so what I decided to do right when Corona hit is we started a delivery system basically by pen and paper. Um, so I just basically put on social media that we have a delivery system, updated Google and things like that, um, and started taking deliveries by the phone um, and delivering for free um, during the pandemic. Um, so no charge. So it took a little while for it to gain some traction, uh, a couple weeks. Uh, first week, maybe had two or three orders, and then by like the end of that month, we were up to like almost 20, 30 orders uh, a day with deliveries. Um, so what I decided to do was I invested in a new website, um, and now in the next coming weeks, we'll have online ordering um, and pickup, curbside, and delivery all on our online ordering platform. Um, and we'll be able to take payment over the, over the web as well. Um, so now we're transitioning in from taking phone calls and orders, uh, over the phone. Um, and now we'll have online ordering, um, just because Corona looks like it's about to spike back up. looks like we're about to start going into the fall and just flu season in general. Um, so it's going to be awesome. You know, it's going to be great. <laughs> this, this, this next couple of months with online ordering is going to be, you know, really good. And it took something like Corona for us to adapt, you know, um, and I wanted to find something out there that uh, didn't take so much uh, money for each order, uh, each commission order, you know. So uh, I found a platform through Glory Foods, um, and they just charge a one-time fee per month for their platform, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited. Well, dude, going back to, to Waiter and um, all these different delivery, delivery services that businesses run through, you know, you talk about how it basically – essentially in a nutshell kind of screws over the business owner um and with uh with how much they charge dude i think the first time i used waiter i was actually on a bachelor party i woke up and we know how bachelor parties go i wake up hung over and i'm starving like ravaging ready to eat so i'm like all right screw it let me download waiter um because at the time, a lot of cars in the driveway for the Airbnb. I'm like, I'm not about to get everyone move their car, whatever. Right, uh, right. So I'm like, let me just order something. Dude, I ordered McDonald's. I'm thinking, all right, I'm just going to be cheap here, like something easy, you know, because I'm sure we're going to do things throughout the day that I'm going to spend money on. Well, right. order McDonald's and, dude, like I got, I got a like 10-piece nugget meal and – when I when I hit purchase, dude, this order was up to like twenty eight bucks or something like that. I'm it's like, insane. I was like, dude, it's what insane. the fuck? So. It's so insane. <laughs> and DoorDash, DoorDash is even even worse. So I think how they're set up is waiter screws the customer and DoorDash screws the business. I think DoorDash takes something like seventy percent commission oh God. on all orders, and then uh, waiter I think charges uh the customer like an outrageous amount yeah so dude it's insane but you know when you were telling me about uh doing your own form of online ordering and being able to save those dollars that's going to be huge but one of the things that i'll just bring up to you without name dropping because that's something i'm just 
not doing on this on this episode or on the podcast in general but a, a mutual friend of ours um we were kind of talking i was telling him about the conversations we've had in recent weeks and he had said dude like one of the things about herb is he's not afraid to shift focus and go after the money if it's there and right um, I think that kind of echoes to what you're saying about adapting with the pandemic, you know, with with coffee and donuts and um, just small, easy items to transport. You know, one of the things you and I talked about the other day was the fact that you're in essentially the hub for where the the lunch break goes, because if you go in uh, uh, Destrehan or Ormond at 12 p.m. on any weekday i mean dude those plant workers are rolling in and out of in and out of frost top in and out of mcdonald's in and out of the sports pub like all these places well now they have a place that's literally they can spit on it from the parking lot where they're working so with you being right in the central of that hub i mean dude that's huge and the fact that you're getting as many online orders and you know the expected growth in that i mean Dude, adaptability is everything, and I mean, right now is the time to freaking do it because, like you said, so many business owners are just taking a beating right now. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where it's like, you know, like a lot of people are running from, a lot of business owners right now are running from this pandemic, um, and I think it's just one of those things where, like, you got to start throwing some punches back. Yeah. Um, you know, and like there's systems out there that businesses can find, like, you know, whatever fits your system, whether that be Squarespace or, you know, Gloria Foods, which is a one time uh, fee per month um, instead of commission based. Um, there's just all sorts of tools out there for every business that they could use to start throwing punches, you know, during the pandemic. Um, and, and in some there's not. And that's unfortunate, you know, because not everybody can adapt you know, depending on their field. For sure, dude. Like, you know, with me, with the marketing side, you know, luckily for us, we're in the digital space, but there's a lot of businesses that it's, it's harder for them to rebound. And I don't want to, you know, drop any names of clients that may or may not be struggling, but, you know, we've lost clients who just physically can't have their businesses open. Um, Or if they can, it's a very limited capacity. And that's, it, it sucks. And even for like restaurants and food service, which falls under the blanket of where you are, um, you know, take a place like just using a, a broad example for New Orleans eateries, something like Drago's, you know, that's a that's yep. a restaurant that makes a killing by their dining because they're expensive. You're going to get yep. tipped well, all these things, all this money gets poured back in. Um, so when you start talking about pulling half the seating or 25% of the seating, that's that's a huge chunk off the old uh, checkbook each month. Yeah, that's a huge number, huge number. And, and another thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about the limits on capacity is a lot of times these places have to overwork themselves to accommodate for all of the uh, guidelines for coronavirus. However... They can't have a full staff because they don't have full occupancy, right? Right. Like, how hard is it for a business to have full full staff, but they're only allowed 25 or 50% of the business in that day? Yeah. You know? And it's like, so now you're overpaying your staff, you know? Because, or you do the opposite, and you'd only bring a couple people back, 
you know, or, or separated, however you want to do it. But then those people are overworked. Yep. Well, you dude, know? I, uh, so, and that's not fair you no. know, to anybody, of course, the not. owner or the employee. And it's such a double-edged sword for these business owners too, just cause it's like, well, crap, now I got to put my employees out because I'm out. So it's, it's, it's tough, man. Um, you know, recently I went, so, uh, my son does swim lessons uptown New Orleans. So one of the things that we'll frequently do, um, is grab food right after for lunch because by the time he finishes, we're, we're looking at lunchtime and mm-hmm. went, uh, grab food from somewhere a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, dude, the, the restaurant itself was still blocked off. They're only taking to go orders, big table at the entrance. So you go in, you grab it. And I mean, dude, there's, there's probably four or five workers that I saw in there, let alone how many there may be in the kitchen. And it's just like, well, shit, dude, like if you don't even, if you don't get, but you know, 30, 35 orders in that day, that's, that's a lot of money to be lost. Yep. hundred percent. But it's just, it's sad, man. It really is. And a lot of people too, what they don't realize about these restaurants, um, is they don't make their money off food. They make their money off of alcohol, you know? Yeah. So a lot of these eateries in New Orleans make their money off of high-end alcohol, you know, sitting there drinking at the bar or at the table or, you know, festivals or, you know, events, conferences, whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, a lot of these places, their food isn't isn't necessarily making them a lot of money, even if they're selling a lot of food, yeah. you know? They uh and you know it's funny you bring up the alcohol side of it because the place I went to, the first thing you see when you walk in is a wall with uh the painted menu on it essentially and it's just drink specials. It was a wall of drinks. Now this was my first time going into this place, but legitimately the first thing I noticed walking into this place was their drinks. And I'm sitting there yeah. looking at that and I'm like, oh that looks good. I would get that. That looks good. I would get that. And now. Yeah. You can't just give these things to go. <laughs> so nope. it's, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really good point in terms of how it's affecting businesses, especially in New Orleans, because, I mean, you know as well as I do, you go out to eat with a couple of friends, you know, you're not spending a lot of the money on food. It's the drinks before, during, and after where you're sitting exactly. for 30 minutes talking after. So mm-hmm. that's, that, that's cutting huge into... Uh, into that payroll and into that business's ability to make money. So, um, but- yeah, and then not to cut you off, but uh, just to mention something about that payroll thing. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize too is about the uh, the payroll. Um, I forgot the like actual term of the bill, but the uh, payroll forgiveness, basically, I think is what it's called mm-hmm. for businesses. You still have to pay the tax on it. Yeah. So it's like, it still costs you, you know, even to get your payroll covered, it still costs you. Yeah, it's, I mean, (laughs) most of the, I'm not going to say most of the bills, but yeah, a lot of those bills, a lot of times those relief funds, things like that, I mean, they're going to come back and get their money one way or another. (laughs) Somebody's paying for it. Somebody's (laughs) paying for it. But yeah, dude, it's, it's crazy right now. And again, like for you. Um, it, it's, it's just insane that you open this new, this new place. And then all of a sudden it's just like immediately great. Here comes a freaking pandemic. What the hell? So, yeah. um, we opened up, we opened up in December, December 6th of 2019. 
and then the pandemic hit, hit in March. Yeah, and what we when so when were y'all first restricted, or did y'all start taking precautions beforehand? Uh, so I when the news started coming out about the virus, I started to go down that rabbit hole, and it was kind of like still a little bit of a conspiracy theory at the time, like. Like, it wasn't going to come here, but they had cases in Wuhan and things like that. And I had, yeah. like, seen video of, like, people dropping in the street. Um, down, like, this rabbit hole of links that I had found. Um, it kind of freaked me out. So I started I started getting together. Like, I looked up on YouTube how to make hand sanitizer. And uh, I had a buddy that worked at the hospital, and I got him to give me, like, uh, I gave him some money to give me, like, you know, boxes of the... Uh, the regular masks, not like N95s or nothing crazy, just the regular medical masks. Yeah. Um, so I started, I started gathering up supplies. You know, um, I started every week. I was going grabbing disinfectant wipes, um, and this wasn't for me for personal use. This was for the shop because I yeah. knew if something like this happened, we would need a lot of these items. You know, for sure. Um, so. Uh, just to stay open, you know. So I was just collecting these items, collecting these items, and then when the shutdown happened, um, I was ready to go. Like I, the day the shutdown happened, I had brought all the masks, all the uh, hand sanitizer, all the Lysol and disinfectant wipes that I had gathered. And I think about a two week period. Um, I think it took before it started getting you know real crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then uh, I was right across the street from Dollar General. So even in that first week where everybody was like flipping out. Um, and like rushing to the store, um, I was able to get there cause I, I go to work at six o'clock in the morning and we're right across the street from right. Dollar General. So right when it opened, I'd walk in, grab like, you know, my little limit of two Lysol things and head back to work. Um, so yeah, so we've been, we've been well prepared. Uh, we got hand sanitizer stations, uh, all of our employees wear masks. Uh, we have a mask policy. So you have to wear your mask until you sit at the table um we went from 11 tables in our dining area down to five um and then our bar we had six people or six seats at our bar and we went down to two okay yeah so i mean taking taking the whole six foot roll to to a t um yeah yeah, we measured it out um you know we were in there with a with a measuring tape and you know, it, it is funny because my grandpa's, you know, older and stuck in his ways. He's just like so confused why we have to do these things. But he <laughs> eventually, eventually adhered to it. You know, right. he was on board with it because I was just like, grandpa, like they're gonna they're gonna roast us on the internet. Like we gotta <laughs> do this. Like they're gonna they're gonna roast us on the internet. We're gonna be all over the internet. Everybody's gonna be shaming us. Yeah, dude. You, it's, you got to. I mean, it's it's uh, public. Public safety concern, man. Oh, so yeah, it's, no. I, it's, I'm just trying to explain it to him in, like, layman terms. So yeah. Because he, he, he doesn't even have a smartphone. Like, he doesn't even have a smartphone. Like, so so your grandpa is legitimately is. the OG. Yeah, he's the OG. Like, he doesn't know what Facebook is. <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Like, I told him I'm doing online order. Yeah, like, he's like, oh, that sounds great. But like, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> it's like a big website and, like, a big deal, you know? Oh, just, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, man. He just loves coming to work. He comes to work every day to our shop now since it's closer. Yeah. Um, and he basically just comes in there and he'll make some donuts or some beignets. He'll hang out for like three hours and then he'll head home. Dude, but he's there yeah. every day. <laughs> hey, dude, that's a good thing, man. And if he's staying yeah. active, dude, more power to him. Um, yep. 
but yeah, dude, it's it's crazy. You know, all the all the safety measures and you know, I guess kind of echoing the point of you diving down the rabbit hole and starting to take it more serious than a lot of people did early on. You know, uh, one of the things you and I talked about recently and how we kind of connected was through through the blog, essentially, you know, being it gets shared, you'd read it, whatever. Um, but one of the things I pride myself on is, you know, researching and being well-informed about whatever's happening, you know, and if I'm not, I, I want to know the answers. If I'm wrong, I want somebody to tell me I'm wrong. Well, you know, one of the... Not to get super into the political sphere here, but like the CDC, uh, these leading health organizations, you know, I'm starting to, I started looking at some of the data that they had collected uh, when it was still spreading uh, in Wuhan. And, you know, by a, a couple of weeks, it was in the middle of Mardi Gras season. And that's really when we started. And by we, I mean me and my family started just kind of scaling back on what we did in the public. You know, my wife was pregnant. I got a young young child already. I'm like, I'm not taking any risks with this shit um, based on what I had read about it. And, you know, um, it, it's kind of crazy. And then it hits us. And even though I was taking precautions before a lot of people were, there was still that little part in my head that's like, eh, it probably won't be that serious. It probably won't be that serious. I think we'll be able to, you know, get it under control. Because as we've seen with outbreaks before, you know, I remember in fifth grade hearing about SARS. I remember, um, you know, the Ebola outbreak, uh, you know, uh, swine flu, all these things. Of course, they were they were bad, but overwhelmingly... You know, our country did a solid job containing it as best as they could. So I thought the same with this. And then, dude, once that outbreak started coming, I was like, shit. And you talk about going into the Dollar General, one of the stories I'll echo. So obviously one of the big things was people hoarding a lot of the the supplies from stores. I go into Winn-Dixie. I couldn't find water. And we were out. And again, my wife is late into her pregnancy at this point, so I'm like, dude, what the fuck, man? Just because going on. Yeah. Right. Like she she can't, you know, I mean, obviously if push games to comes to shove, drink tap water, whatever, but can't find water and then I couldn't find uh paper towels and toilet paper and all of these things we needed desperately. So I ended up going into the Dollar General at the front of Ormond, and there were three packs. I'm like, all right, I'll get two of them, leave one. So I wound up getting two of them, and I I was livid walking out of Dollar General because I'm just like, dude, what the fuck? Like, who is hoarding all of this stuff? And, I, I think I think a lot of that mentality is just down here in the south is that hurricane mentality. Right. Like every time like they tell us it's gonna be like the craziest hurricane it's up not be it, so it's just like but like everybody goes buying toilet paper, you know, and, for the and beer. So Can't forget like, the beer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, dude, what's funny what's funny about the toilet paper, obviously one of the one of the jokes that was being made was why why is toilet paper the thing we're hoarding for this? Um <laughs> but when we try cuz one of the things that my family and I love to do um at least prior to covid happening 
you know, Friday afternoons, we would always, once uh, Melissa would get home from work, because I work from home, she'd um, pick up Finn from wherever he was, and, you know, we would then just go to Target, go walk around, like, get out the house, do our grocery shopping, like, and mm-hmm. that that was, that's been our weekly tradition. Well, of course, when this happens, that gets stepped on, so, of course, you know, we tell, tell our two-year-old, um, you know, at the time this is all unfolding, we're just like, yeah, dude, like we can't go anywhere. There's, there's a nasty virus going around. We don't want to get it. Well, because he word association, he associated the word virus with diarrhea. So, (laughs) so his whole thing for why we can't go to target and still to this day, it's the thing. Why, why we can't go to Target or why we can't go to the playground or any of these places. Can't go to Target. Diary is going around. I'm just like, all right, sure. We're going to roll with that. That's hilarious. <laughs> so maybe he knew something that none of us did or and it somehow got out to the world of hoarding toilet paper. But, um, you know, one of the other big impacts here uh, with COVID – um, that you know we can dive into is is the sports realm. So you coach, um, you coach a couple of grades soccer at uh, Newman, um, which is a very prominent school in Uptown New Orleans. Uh, and yeah, you're also <laughs> yeah, dude. We were talking about the campus. The campus alone, it's like, all right, what college is this? <laughs> I know, dude. Every time I'm over there, I'm just like, I got the biggest smile on my face being on that campus because it's just, it's just so nice, dude. It's, it's gorgeous. And I had told you the yeah. first time I'd ever stepped foot on that campus was maybe about a year ago to go meet with someone who uh, coaches swimming over there. Um, and dude, it's, it's insane. Um, but you're also a coach of uh, Louisiana Fire, which is a club soccer organization. Um, yeah obviously here in Louisiana. So, um, talk about that. You know, what's, you obviously played growing up, you played in high school and then didn't you also play club at, uh, UL? Yeah, I played, I played at club, uh, played at UL for two years or two, two and a half years, I think. Um, and then after that moved back down in New Orleans and then started coaching with Louisiana fire. Um, and then last year was my first year at Newman. Dude, I, I well, it was funny because I remember seeing that and I was like, dude, no shit, like that's cool. So, um, let, let's dive back to the beginning. You know, what growing up, you know, with soccer, um, was it always pretty much your sport of choice? Did you play other sports or did you? Pretty yeah, much... I, I did. I uh, I played other sports. I was a shortstop, um, second baseman for in baseball, um, and then. Uh, played soccer too. But that was just the main two sports was was baseball and soccer. Pretty um, much the then, pretty much the white boys' wet dream growing up yep, is pretty much soccer yep. and baseball. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um, but what's funny is is a lot of people you know think I'm white. I I am white. Don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, my dad's actually from uh, was born in Honduras, uh, and my okay. mom's from America. So I'm like half and half. I'm a mutt. <laughs> well, dude, that's like uh, so. Melissa's uh, Melissa's got Cuban roots in in her family. So, um, but uh, again, like looking at Melissa, you'd never really guess it because she's mm-hmm. she's as white as they come. Um, but so, um, you know, with soccer, when did when did the the shift kind of focus more towards soccer? At what age, really? 
Yeah, so we were, it was U10, so under 10, so we were 9 and 10 years old, and we were playing for a travel team out of St. Charles Parish. Uh, I was playing with Sam Weinberg, Adam Weinberg. Um, I've been playing with them since I was like yeah. four. Um, and we had played in the recreation growing up, and then um, by U9 and U10, we decided to do a travel team. And you know, our family was good friends, and uh, we did a St. Charles Parish travel team uh, for a year. Um, and we just realized that the quality wasn't there um, in St. Charles Parish at the yeah. time. Um, and most rec sports, I mean, don't have it. Travels where you're going to have the competition. Right. So we had the competition um, in travel, but we didn't have the coaching. You know, mm. we were getting smashed. Yeah. <laughs> like, smashed by these teams, you know. So uh, we did a year of that. And then um, going into U11, um, Sam and Adam were trying out for this competitive team at um, Lafayette. The time it's called Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, my mom was like, you should try out. You should try out. And I was like, uh, you know, uh, I got baseball. Like, I'm not really, <laughs> you know, like, I'm not really trying to get into a travel team, whatever, whatever. Um, so they ended up trying out. Um, and they were short players for a full roster. So my mom was like, all right, like, the team's short, you know, a full roster. Like, why don't you just go ahead and play? So we ended up playing, and that, and that was it. I never played baseball again. Uh, but part of the baseball part too, uh, one of the baseball coaches at Destrian, uh, Coach Munts, uh-huh. his son, Seth, was in my grade. Uh, and we both played second base, and he was way better than me. Like, way better. And Seth <laughs> actually went on to play college so, ball, I believe. Yeah. So I was like, uh, so I was like, yeah, let me go with soccer. That's my calling. <laughs> like, not, it's not baseball. Well, I do the writing on the wall. Dude, here's what's crazy. So a little backstory, because I played the same two sports growing up, um, and it's just ironic because basketball turned out to be my favorite. Like, that's what I want my my son to play now, you know? Um, but basketball or soccer, I'd be good with. Um, but growing up, I, I played football one year at Curtis, was a glorified tackling dummy, hated it, so I was like, yep, never the hell again. Um, and... But growing up, it was always baseball and soccer. And same thing with you. Like, you mentioned U10. That was about the same age that I went the other way. I'm like, yeah, screw this. Like, I like baseball more. Um, I played goalie primarily for soccer, and then I played uh, midfield. And, um, you know, my dad usually coached my my rec soccer team. So we we had the same group of guys. Uh, A lot of them you'd probably know. Like, I remember... Andre Albrecht was on a couple of my teams. Oh, that's one of my best friends, man. Okay. <laughs> I love that, dude. Yeah, that's one of my best friends. He's he, Iceman. Dude, that's it was... Iceman. His family does ice sculptures. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. dude, it was him. Evan Muir, I think, was on my team. And then... Squirt. Uh, yeah, dude. And then Justin Neubauer. And... Um, that's awesome. I remember the three of them, like, pretty much... They were the ones running and gunning at forward. They pretty much scored all of our goals in wreck. And I was I would just sit back in the goal and just be like, all right, cool. Let me just not let them score. And that's what I did. I watched them score like 8, 9, 10, 12 goals um, between the three of them. Wow. But they, they were on my team multiple years. Andre, I know for sure. Um, but, yeah, eventually I just went with baseball and – 
You know, what's interesting, you mentioned the travel soccer and stuff like that. You know, my pipeline essentially was soccer because my dad was a uh, my sister, oldest sister's travel coach, and they had a really good team. Um, and then my middle sister played. Do you know? Uh, do you know Jose Buddy? That sounds familiar. He, I mean, he was uh, he was a pretty. He still is a pretty big coach. Like he was involved with Lafreniere. He's involved in St. Charles. Um, but she played for him for years. So, dude, I was always traveling as a kid for my sister's tournaments and then you know it just soccer wasn't it for me like baseball was where uh, essentially i thought my talent was so i went with that um but yeah dude soccer it's um you know one of the i guess regrets that i have from my childhood is not sticking with it because dude i I love the sport so much now especially more so than baseball um but dude it's it's one of the one of the things I, I love about soccer, and I, I revert back to I believe it was the 2010 World Cup when U.S. had their their decent run and the freaking group the of round death. Of Sixteen, I believe, right? Yeah, and they they ran the gauntlet with the group of death. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. I remember, I think it was it was Germany, Ghana, and I can't remember who the other one was. Um, uh, Portugal. Por- that's right. That's right. Yes, we, we I got tie in Portugal. And I think we lost in Germany maybe one nothing. And yeah. then we beat Ghana on that legendary Landon Donovan yes. trailing in the box yep. last minute of the game that sent us to the round of sixteen and then I think we lost to Belgium. Yeah. That sounds when about Tim right. Tim Howard Tim Howard had the uh what what they call him? Uh Secretary of Defense game. Yeah. They they said to hire him. Immediately, yeah. the Secretary of Defense <laughs> yes. of the United States. I remember that. How many, I think, dude, I, I, am not kidding. You can go look this up on YouTube. The highlights of that game. I'm, I'm not kidding. I think it was 21 saves. Oh my god, dude! And he let in one goal. Yeah, one goal on 21 shots. That doesn't dude. include the ones that were off target, right? You know, like that's just 21 saves. Like, dude, what? It, yeah. That that was a fun run, and I mean, really, the only memorable run that I know of in you oh, know, our lifetime. That was the peak. That yeah. was the peak. I mean, now we didn't even pick the world cup. Well, dude, with so going back to my point with that run, this is one of the things I love about soccer: the games you feel like you're supposed to win, you end up losing. The games you feel like you should have lost, you end up winning. Like the game is so complex in that sense. Like. Yep. In in football or baseball, um, or even basketball, like you don't have that same sort of element. If your team's knocking down your shots, you're probably winning that game. If you're getting runs, you're probably winning that game. You know, you could do everything fucking right in soccer for a game and still end up in the L column. Yeah. I see it it's, all the time. It's, they say the beautiful game, and that's why. I mean, it's so, so complex. But funny story about that World Cup run. So I've ne- like, I respect the hell out of Cristiano Ronaldo. He's obviously one of the best players of all time. Um, but we know what Cristiano is. He's kind of a piece of shit, plays like it, doesn't hustle on D, and he's pretty Cry much baby. the. Yeah. Cry baby. Yeah. That's what I call him. 
Fair, pretty boy. Fair He's enough. Pretty boy. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. it was funny because Cristiano Ronaldo, I made fun of him uh, because it looked like the U.S. was going to go on to win that game. So I start making fun of him on Facebook, and I was like, yeah, like, that's what you get, Ronaldo, you little bitch, like, whatever. <laughs> and, dude, I shit you not, like, two or three minutes later is when he sends that beautiful fucking cross for the goal. And yep. I just remember going back on Facebook, and I'm like, fuck, I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> that's one thing about you can hate him, but, man, is he efficient. Yeah. I mean, he is in the stat sheet, assists or goal, every game. Yep, dude, he's Every he's game. he's unbelievable, man. He's, he's really, I mean, it, it, it's it's crazy with him and Messi the way that they're playing, yeah. Like their careers are played out because if either one of them would have been in a different generation, they'd be the best player ever, without a doubt. You know, and so it's, it's just it's crazy. Yeah, it's wild, and um, but with uh, with you, so. Or, uh, but actually, before we get to talking about what you're kind of doing as a coach, I, I do want to ask you this because I saw um, another mutual friend who played soccer with you at Destrehan um, posted the other day of how good of hands the U.S. is in for the future with uh, Christian Pulisic. And I was I, I texted him because I saw the post and it highlighted a couple of guys. Um, it was like five or six players. And I, I know of Pulisic, but I didn't know of the other ones. Again, it's... I'm not as up to date on soccer as I was like four or five years ago. And then come World Cup, it works kind of the same way as the NFL draft every year. I do enough research to where I'm I'm up to speed to know what the hell I'm talking about come draft time, despite not watching college football. Same thing with soccer and the World Cup every four years. But um, texting him and I was like, dude, tell me about some of these other guys. But he, he was sharing some of that information. It seems like U.S. could be on a on a nice run in a couple of years. And one of the things I am seeing and one of the things I am excited about. So I had told you that uh, we might be moving to Atlanta soon. Dude, I'm excited for when those games get back there because uh, the um, MLS team out of Atlanta, dude, packs a house of like 46,000 a game. So, I, dude, I'm pumped beyond belief to have a professional soccer team in my backyard. Yeah, that's going to be so fun. And I want to say Beckham, Beckham's part owner of that team, I believe. Oh, wow, okay. And, and I think uh, uh, somebody in the entertainment industry, I think, is part owner as well. Nice. Well, dude, they are yeah. killing it. Because I was looking – that was one of the first things I looked up um, in regards to some of the sports teams out there. I knew they had a team, and then when I saw that, that – not only do they have a team, Atlanta's behind that team. I was like, dude, hell yes. That makes yeah. me so happy. Atlanta's got a, a pretty big soccer community. Yeah, um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't think that, but they do. Well, know? dude, my wife and I were walking uh, in Piedmont Park. Um, that was some place we liked to go a lot when she was doing her internship there, right out of college. And dude, you walk around Piedmont Park on the weekend, dude. There's soccer games going on all over the place. Mm-hmm. So it's. I want to say they just lost the, or they they won. Yeah, I think they won the MLS Cup nice. last year. Okay. Or the year before. I think, yeah, the first year that they were they were a team, I think they went to the finals. <laughs> nice, dude. That's sick. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're a good squad. 
Well, dude, and then the other thing, too, is I believe, uh, so they also have a women's uh, professional team, and I believe mm-hmm. Carly Lloyd's on that team. So that's, now granted, she's older, so don't know how much longer she's got left, but if I get a chance yeah. to see her play, dude, I, I'm excited for that, too. She so. she took over uh, before was Mia Hamm for me, was my favorite women's player. Yeah. Um, I liked Abby Wambach a lot, um, but, man, Carly Lloyd, I think, is probably my all-time favorite women's player. She's up there for me, All-time. dude. I'm um, I'm I'm definitely impartial to Wambach and then Megan Rapino because I remember, mm. and and this was prior to all the drama she got involved with during the last World mm-hmm. Cup run, which might I add was fucking glorious. Like the fact that she was dealing with the noise she she had to deal with because of her political opinions and she yeah, still just went out stage. there right like just <laughs> got to shut that out go play like right what? like look at me what do you want but yeah. um no back in back in uh i can't remember the exact year 2011 i think is what it was when she really came onto the scene i remember watching her and one of the i guess male comparisons i thought of watching her play was uh, Mesut Ozil because, you know, um, the way she was kind of, she's always sort of been the person who sets up uh, the the offense for the U.S. women's team because obviously it runs through her. Yeah, it was, you know, Abby Wambach obviously being a bigger presence, you know, they like to get the ball in the air. And I just remember watching Rapino during that 2011 run and I was like, dude, she's a fucking stud. And then, of course, had another great performance. And then, of course, her last performance was f- freaking legendary. But legendary. Um, she, yeah, dude, she, I think... I, I, I go back and forth between her and Wambach, but those two are by far my two favorites. But, you know, talking about Mia Hamm, um, you know, obviously, again, with my sisters playing soccer, I grew up around women's soccer, so I've always been more impartial to women's World Cup than men's. But, um, yeah, dude, it's such a it's such a hell of a sport. And uh, with you coaching it, I mean, growing up around it, now now you're coaching it, you know, talk about some of the – things you love most about being able to do that yeah so um growing up when i started first playing premiere um i really fit well into the center mid role um i started playing that in high school for Dushran, um and really just got a feel for the game as far as passing lanes and um just overall I feel like it accelerated uh, my knowledge of the game because as a center mid, everything runs through you. Right. You know, um, you bridge the gap between the defense and the forwards. Um, sometimes you're the last line of defense for the defense, and sometimes you're all the way up top scoring goals. You know, like you do everything in the repertoire. You got every skill um, from passing to shooting to defending, um, all of these things. So growing up, just having that mindset. Um, and then in college, transitioning um, from a center mid, I actually played right back, which was more of like an outside back, mm-hmm. like an attacking wing back. Um, and that just gave me a whole nother level of knowledge as far as like one-on-one defending, uh, forcing a player from their weak foot, I mean from their strong foot to their weak foot, knowing different tendencies, um, poking, pulling. Uh, pulling the jersey when the ref's not looking, little <laughs> things, little things like that that I didn't really recognize as a as a center mid, um, and I 
I had a different perspective being on that back line and seeing the field too. Um, so I just kind of gathered all of that knowledge um, and can now use it in coaching um, in a way where I, I just relate to these kids and they can understand, um, you know, like how I'm expressing the things to do. Um, and just, just being in that, in that, just being in coaching now, is just, it's just so great because I've just gained so much knowledge of the game. I've been coaching for 10 years now, and i played since I was four to almost 25, 24, something like that. So I've been around the game a long time. Um, so, yeah, I just, I just love it, man. I just love everything about it. Well, dude, with, you know, you bring up some of the tactics, um, especially on the defensive side. And one of the things that I, I love – Sports in general, um, defensively speaking, you know, uh, I talk about this a lot. You know, I, I'm still very active or prior to COVID, you know, played flag football on Sundays, playing rec basketball leagues. And one of the, the day I can't wait for is to coach coach my own kids. Um, but, you know, being able to teach players to to play any sport with a higher IQ is always going to be something that me personally, I want, if it, should my kids get involved in sports, that's what I want out of them. Because one of the things that drives me nuts, especially at the youth level, is kids not having the wherewithal to understand, especially in a game like football or soccer. It's it's a game of angles. You know, you, you have to know and anticipate the right angle to take on somebody. So when you talk about playing right back, you know, one of the things that you have the advantage of with is being able to use the sideline as an extra defender mm-hmm. to prevent... 100%. To prevent openings from from happening, and uh, to me, I feel like that's such an undervalued lost art in in sports in a lot of ways. You know, I I don't think people focus enough on those kind of principles. So the fact that you kind of talk about that's awesome to hear. Um, now you're coaching several different levels. What's um, yeah, do you pretty much filter the same the same set or the same formation, or do you are are you trying to have different teams run different formations, which means all the more work for you? <laughs> yeah, so um, I think at the top level, um, when you're, you're talking MLS, you're talking European clubs, college clubs, um, they have certain systems that they can put in place. Mm-hmm. Um. And they can go and recruit players um, to fit those systems, right? right. So they, they can have these built-in systems like um, Atletico Madrid, for example, um, is known for parking the bus. Like their system, they get all 11 behind the ball. So they wouldn't want to go out and recruit a player that hangs high on the back line. Like they're going to want to go sign a forward that gets back on defense, you know, that's not lazy. Um, but with what I'm doing coaching for Newman and coaching for Louisiana fire, I have to build these systems around players, right? So I have to take the players that I have. Let's say I have, you know, five really strong defenders. Um, I'll run a five, uh, four, one, you know, I'll run five defenders in the back. Um, if that's what the team is strong at, you know, or I may have a team that has three excellent strikers. So I may run a four, uh, four, three, you know, run three strikers up top. Yeah. 
Uh, or three four three. I'm sorry, three four three. Yeah, and run with a, with three strikers up top. So it really depends. I think at this level, for me, um, I think every coach has their way of doing things. But for me, I try to build the system around um, around the players. You know, um, and I think that's the best way for them to succeed at this level, um, especially at the middle school level. Um, in the U11 competitive level, you know. Yeah. Now, anything before 11 years old, I think needs to be all developmental. Um, yeah. I think kids need to play every position growing up till they're 11. Let them play goalkeeper. Let them play forward. Let them play defender. Let them play midfield. Let them rotate everywhere on the field. You know, get these kids to understand that even though they might not play right back, at least they know what it's like to play it, and they can have you know, more of a connection with their right back when they're playing center mid or when they're playing forward. Like, hey, I know what that kid's going through. Or, hey, here's a tip. Like, you got to go towards the line or whatever it may be, you know. So, um, and I think that's what the fire is trying to do right now um, with the developmental stuff and YDP and things like that, which I think is good. Um, So, it's just a weird argument right now with uh, shouldn't you play to win, you know. But it's like, I don't think until maybe 11 years old, it shouldn't, winning shouldn't even be, in the forefront, I think development should be first, you know? Dude, I'm glad you bring that up because that's going to be a big conundrum for me is once once my kids get to the age where they're, they're playing sports and, of course, you have these overzealous parents who believe too heavily in winning, but then you also have the the parents who go swing the gate the other way and they believe too heavily in making everyone feel good and you know i think it's about finding that balance and i tell people this all the time i don't care about participation trophies up to a certain age but i think that's a you mentioning 11 is a happy medium um essentially just because i i think like 9 10 11 is where i started to sort of develop the the real understanding for winning and losing because I think cognitively speaking I think that's where kids uh sort of sort of get to that that maturation or understanding of okay you know my best day may not be good enough today right right yeah it's it is a weird thing because I'm with you I come from that same um cut of cloth where it's like win at all costs, you know, win at all costs. Like everything you do should be to win, you know, but it's like, at the same time, it's like, what if we can get all these kids more developed and not more focused on winning by time they can get to 11, 12 year old age. Now we can start focusing on winning and we don't have to go back to how to trap a ball, you know, or we don't have to go back to how to, how to juggle a ball or whatever the, whatever it may be, you know, for sure. And one of the, uh, I guess to just kind of echo that point, too, in terms of helping these kids understand the fundamentals. You know, at at the end of the day, thinking about this just from a very dumbed-down level, some of the coaches, of course of course, you want to win. I mean, the the goal to walk into a sport is never to be like, oh, cool, yeah, let's, uh, let's just see what happens today. Um, but... Kind of some of these coaches that beat the drum so heavily on winning, number one, you're going to turn a lot of kids off. And number two, look, if you're coaching eight or nine-year-olds and your ultimate goal is to just win at all costs, what are you trying to prove as a coach? Like you're not going anywhere. You're not You're not going to be coaching high school or college tomorrow because your fucking eight-year-old team was successful. 
Right. And, like, that's the thing I tell people. Like, you know, with my Newman boys, um, they're 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. So they're at that age, 11, 12, 13, where we win. We play to win, you know, and, and that's that's our mindset. But when I'm at the club with the 11, uh, the 10-year-olds and the 9-year-olds, um, that's not the case. You know, we're not focused on winning. So, like, if I have little Billy and little Billy scores four goals in the first half, I'm not going to put little Billy up top anymore, you know. Little Tommy's going to go up top, who has been playing defense the whole game, and we're going to put Billy in goal, you know. And then that way this team can stop getting pelted by 12 goals, you know. And now little Tommy can score goals and develop, you know. And Billy can, you know, play goalie and learn what it's like to be a goalie, you know. And things like that. So it's like you don't need to beat teams 14 nothing. Like what are you what are you doing for these kids, yeah. you know. Like, just because you have one guy that can score eight goals and is a magnificent forward, like, nobody else is getting any development. Like, they're just kicking it forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just... And, you know, it's you kind of bring that up and, like, one of the dickbag moves that I did as a kid, and I remember this. So I played fall baseball, which was pretty popular in St. Charles Parish. Well, there was a kid on the team. I was playing second base. Um, a ball got hit to right field, and it got pretty far out there. Well, being me, I just hustled to it, and I beat the kid to the ball. And I remember one of the coaches telling me, like, yo, like, let him get the fucking ball. Because, um, uh, you know, the kid wasn't athletic. Um, but, uh, again, it's a league that doesn't even have a championship or didn't even have a tournament it was just essentially exhibition games so let that kid get experience of either being good or being bad like get let let that kid have some self-worth and of course being me because you know like we just said we kind of grew up with that mentality of win at all costs i thought to myself well that's just fucking stupid why would i do that and then of course looking back on it you know 20 years later i'm like no that, that was the right thing to tell me so it, it's really you know, I, I think that's great that you're trying to find that balance and also that you have the the luxury of being able to coach younger kids and coach developments, but also staying in tune with some older kids and teaching, hey, let's let's go out there and win. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's crazy, too, because it's like stepping into this new role. Uh, I'm now in the upper echelon as far as like the great historic schools like I'm playing Jesuit brother martin um you know just these top level schools that i heard about as a public school kid you know so it's just like it's 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 really intense you know for middle school like these teams are really good you know for sure um now before we wrap up here um one of the one of the last things that uh i'll bring up and going back to uh professional soccer um you know what's one of the one of the things that I wanted to bring up with MLS that I think is really cool is, you know, um, we're starting to see a, sort of a a rise in the popularity in a sense of bringing in some well known stars. Like I remember back in the day, Thierry Henry came and played for the Red Bulls, um, but most recently, he came for the Red Bulls. Kaká uh, from Brazil came to Orlando. Uh, one of the Germans came to Chicago Fire. I forgot his name. Uh, I don't know. It'll come to me. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's a lot of a lot of uh, Swinestagger. Swinestagger. Yeah. Came to oh, that's Fire. right. He did. Yeah. Uh, Pirlo came to New York City FC. 
um, which he's about to be, I think, the new coach of Juventus. Well, dude, my my uh, not I'm not gonna say my goat because he's not the goat, but he is my favorite player of all time, and that's really isn't close, but. Dude, the second Zlatan dropped the video that he was playing for the Galaxy, I lost my shit. Oh, man. Isn't he the best, man? Oh, he's dude, he's, he's amazing. So, um, one of my one of my favorite things that happened, so it was the big debate was who's better, him or Carlos Vela? And when the reporter had asked him that question, he's like, okay, how old's Carlos Vela? And I think he was 29, maybe. He was like... Yeah, where was I at 29? And of course, he he mentioned uh, you know overseas in Europe, and he was like, "Yeah, big difference. Who's better?" And he was just like, "Me by far. Like, don't even ask that question." <laughs> like, oh, dude, he's the most arrogant and in the best way imaginable. Like, I just um, love people that back it up, man. Oh, dude, one hundred percent. Talk your shit, man. Talk your shit. Dude, he um, he was one of my favorite quotes from him. Um, it was before a World Cup. They asked Sweden the chances of winning, and he said something like, "God only knows." And uh, the reporter snapped back and was like, "Well, I can't ask him." And Zlatan looks at the dude and he just goes, "Yeah, you're talking to him." <laughs> I tell people all the time, like Zlatan is basically the Chuck Norris of. One hundred percent, dude. He's great. So, for you, who's some of the players you uh you loved growing up? Oh man, so I was a huge, huge Ronaldinho fan. Like huge. Makes sense. Um, when he came out with uh, that iconic uh, YouTube video of him juggling uh, off the crossbar, uh huh. Um, that was just that was probably the peak, but uh. I really, really enjoyed Wayne Rooney uh, at Manchester City, uh, United, uh, Man United. Uh, he was one of my favorite players growing up, for sure. Yeah. Um, and just because he was just, I always love players that look unorthodox. Like, if you look at Wayne Rooney, he doesn't look like he would be a top football, like soccer no, player. No, not at all. Like, he looks like somebody's dad at a cookout. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he's got the flip-flops on, he's got the belly and it's just like, dude, like, you don't look like you're one of the best European soccer players ever. Yeah. You know? And, then like, you just see him play. And it's like the goals he would score were just, like, some of the – like, he had a great shot, don't get me wrong, but, like, he would just always be in the right place at the right time or, like, he would make a defensive play and score assists. Like, he was just always doing just the most, you know. Dude, instincts, so, man. Um, definitely Wayne Rooney. And then as of late, I have uh, – I've been a huge, huge Messi fan, man. I think yeah. uh, just just some of the stuff he can do uh, is just unbelievable. Like it's it really the way he dribbles through players. Um, and what I like most about him is he has his tendency to set up his teammates. Yeah, That's, like he's like equivalent to me, like LeBron. Like how LeBron always makes the right absolutely. Play. Messi is the same in that regard. Like. He will make the right plays. The right plays for him to take it and dribble three people and score, he'll do that. 
or he'll dribble four people and lay it off. You know, like he's not one of these players that are going to force anything. And I mean, like basically, that's why he's so good because he doesn't force anything. He takes what they give him and he schools them every time. Well, universe, I, and I, I don't want to say universally because I think it's close on what people think. Obviously, the big debate that we alluded to earlier is Messi or Ronaldo, but. Personally, that's why I've always gravitated towards Messi, just because he is the guy who's going to do it all and do what's best for the team in every situation. Ronaldo, he's just good enough, and he's going to get his. That's that's what it is. Now, more often than not, he's not hurting you, but there are games where you're like, you're killing your team here, dude. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. And that's one thing I don't like about Ronaldo is all the whiny and bitchiness that he does yeah um i try to train every player that i train to never speak back to the ref yeah. um because there's never been i don't i don't care what you say there's never been a call in the history of calls that have been called back in a soccer game because you bitched about right calls. and all and it's gonna do is piss happens. off the refs dude yeah like the ref is never gonna be like oh you make a good point let me let me wipe that clean yeah you know, so I just I've never liked that, and I think Messi's just one of those players um, that he just gets dirty, man. He's slide tackling, he's yeah. dropping back in the midfield, he's taking throw-ins. You know, like you don't, it doesn't, he doesn't, he's like the jan, he'll be the janitor if he has to. Be, yeah, you know, like it, it doesn't, he doesn't have to be the CEO boss in the nice office up top in the top of the building on the top floor. Like Messi will be down there in the in the in the trenches, you know. So. I've always, always leaned Messi over Ronaldo just for the fact that he's just, if I was picking who I'd rather play like, it'd be Messi. Yeah. Dude, the two two guys that I, I'll bring up um, before we wrap up here, two guys that I loved watching growing up, um, number one, Frank Lampard. Um, oh, man. Dude. Class. Oh yeah, man. You want you want to just talk about class, man? Lampard's it. Um, I still remember his. Uh, oh fuck! I, it might have actually been the 2010 World Cup where he bounced it in off the uh, crossbar, and I there was, uh, yep. and I think it got called a no goal. I remember watching that, and I was just like, "Fuck." Um, yeah, dude. I actually, I'm glad you brought up that part because I I rank him overall higher than David Beckham. A lot of people put David. Yeah. Beckham. Dude, um, speaking of that team, Jesus Christ, man, that England team. So one of the games, one of the video games I played growing up a lot, and I recently popped it back in um, uh, within the last couple of months. I've been busting out the PS2, World Tour Soccer 2005. And I used, nice. to, I used to always play with England. Dude, Beckham, Lampard, Owen, Rooney, like – just insane, dude. dude. I'm looking at this roster, and I was like, I forgot about most of these guys playing here. I was just like, holy shit. Yeah, they were some ballers, man. Like that early 2000. Yeah, dude. Between 2000 and 2006, they were they were good. That was before Germany took over. Yeah. Um, but two of the uh, two of the others I'll mention real quick here, and two guys who have always been top five favorites, and they're two of the most. Uh, more under-recognized, I'd say, because they're always overshadowed by bigger stars on their teams. But one is Eden Hazard. Um, oh, man, I love that dude. Oh, uh, dude, he's he's lightning in a bottle, and he's just oh, so damn good with the ball. He's very mess- messy-esque. Yeah. He's, he's, 
I don't even want to call him a poor man's Messi because I feel like that's a slap in the face. But yeah, right. he's Messi esque. Uh, and then the other Hard one fact about him, he's got like. I think he's got two brothers on the Belgium team. Like I think they all play on the Belgium national team. I knew like of seconds. one. I didn't know of a third, but yeah, yeah that's crazy. Third one. Nice. Um, but then the other one, dude, and this is easily behind Zlatan, my second favorite player of all time, and that's uh, Wesley Schneider. Um, oh man, dude! Oh, man. I can't believe you just said that name. What a <laughs> baller! Well, what dude, a baller. I just love the like. And it's crazy because you look at some of the guys, with the exception of Zlatan, that I love. It's just all these like short, just very scrappy, chippy dudes. Yeah, who love him, he just looked like somebody's little brother, right? Somebody's little brother out there. And then you oh. try to stop him, dude. Like he runs like a freaking pit bull. Like he's so low to the ground, but you can't knock him off his feet. He's nope. and then, dude, he's the a way hell of a defender, man. yeah. Oh, uh, dude, the best hardcore glue guy. Yeah, man. And you know what? You know what's sad too, man. He he got robbed of that World Cup. Yeah, they should have beat Spain, man. They, yep. Aaron Robin had two breakaways. I remember vividly that he should have put away, and Iniesta ended up scoring in overtime. I think to to win the World Cup. So yeah, they they got robbed, man. I think that, that Netherlands team was insane. Yeah. Dude, you had uh, Van Persie, Robin, and Schneider being kind of the big three. Yeah, dude, and then they had, like, a bunch of really solid role players. Yeah. Like, Well, dude, that was before um, Huntelar yeah, became a big name. They had some solid, that was a really good team. Man. Yeah, but fuck yeah, man. So, um, before we wrap up here, anything you'd like to add that uh, you'd like to say before we, we cut it short here? Yeah, no, just um, all the listeners out there, coffeeandnorco.com, um, online order will be available soon probably in the next couple of weeks once I figure out all the kinks and things like that. Um, and then also, too, um, coming soon, uh, me and my roommate from College Gage, we are starting a uh, canvas printing company where you'll be able to uh, order online canvases uh, for all your decor and things like that. So um, that'll be in the next couple of months. Um, that'll be launching as well. So make sure you check that out. That's going to be uh, wall underscore loot on Instagram. And then you can find uh, the Coffee and Bakery on Facebook and Instagram, coffee underscore Marco. Boom. You heard it there. So, again, this is uh, uh, Herbert DeLeon. And, uh, Herb, I thank you for coming on, man. Always, always fun to talk business and soccer. And uh, always remember, honor the huddle. Thank you for tuning in to the Hotard Huddle Podcast. Stay up to date with all the latest episodes released on the 1st and 15th of every month at hotardhuddle.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hotard Huddle.